November is American Indian Heritage Month, and I actually wasn't aware of that until I opened my computer to type up some notes for this episode and my iCalendar informed me. I love how spirit and the universe work. This episode is the only the beginning of our dive into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And with the disappearance of Gabby Petito and the outcry we heard about the unequal representation of the BIPOC community, this is where I was being led to next. I felt like I was being stopped from connecting to any of the names that are already on my extensive and growing list of cases to look into, some incredibly well-known and others barely a sentence in a news story to find. During the 1980s and 1990s, at least 14 Native women were murdered or went missing in unsolved cases or died under suspicious circumstances in the state of Washington on the 1.3 million acre Yakama Reservation. These 14 are the only ones who have been reported, though it's thought that there are certainly more. Even more suspiciously, two women, both 29 years old, both Native women in the same area of Yakima County, went missing in 1987. Daisy May Heath, also known as Daisy May Tallman in some articles, and Karen Louise Johnley Wallahy. Karen was last seen at a bar in Harrah, Washington in November of 1987, and Daisy was reported missing in October of 1987, roughly two months after anyone had any contact with her. Daisy was known to disappear for sometimes weeks at a time, but this time, the amount of time was unusual. I'm your host, Catherine Gelvin, true crime lover, seeker of justice, and intuitive medium, and this is Murder and Mediumship. Before we dive fully into this case, I'd like to take a moment to thank my listeners and those who pledge my Patreon in support of the show. I have added a PayPal link to the show notes for anyone who would like to donate in support of production of the show without making a monthly pledge. Thank you for the review, Tuesday's Jewel. They write, really enjoy these podcasts. Look forward to listening to more of them. I like the way the subjects are handled with sensitivity and seriousness. I would love to see a podcast about the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders unsolved since 1977, three little girls murdered their first night at summer camp. Well, this would be a great time to also tell you that within the next few weeks, you will see an increase in production of shows. I'm going to start releasing two shows per week as often as possible. One show will be the listener's choice. So send in your request to Katherine Galvin at katherineannintuitive.com, of course, linked in the show notes. Thank you, Tuesday's Jewel, for the review, and get ready to hear more of your own requests. Daisy was born in January of 1958 to Eldred Heath and Nancy Whitefoot, but was raised by her maternal grandparents, Elias and Lily Whitefoot, as well as other extended family on a ranch in Medicine Valley near the foothills of the Cascades. She was the youngest of six girls and the girls were raised helping to take care of the cattle, the horses, and tending to the gardens on this ranch. They helped with the harvesting of the produce and spent a lot of time in the mountains. It was there that they learned survival skills and how to know and understand the resources provided in the mountains and densely wooded areas. Intuitively, I feel this was almost like a magical getaway for them, where they could be free and just exist in peace. Daisy was described by her sisters as being the fearless one but was always sharing and giving whatever it was she had to share to anyone who needed it. One article even talks about as early as elementary school, she was raising money for UNICEF, the United Nations Children's Fund. So to recap, Daisy May Heath was reported two months after she was last heard from. 
excuse me, was reported missing two months after she was last heard from. Let's talk about why this isn't as crazy as you would think, though, because my jaw definitely dropped when I first saw this on the Charlie Project site, which is the database of missing and unsolved murders. Daisy was an avid hunter, forager, and outdoors person. She could survive in the mountains and fend for herself quite well. Physically, she was very strong and capable, and she was also very well-versed in the outdoors and knew how to navigate nearly anything out there on her own. Her sister Patsy talks about how Daisy would drop out of sight for days or even weeks at a time. And Daisy was an athlete. She played basketball and softball. She helped her niece with basketball. She was in really good physical condition, and she was a really sharp woman. At the time, she was living with her sister Patsy. And it's my understanding that she and another sister, Maria, would help Patsy out a lot as she navigated single motherhood and raising her children. Daisy was also going through kind of a really heavy and difficult time in her life. She gave birth to a baby girl, Sherry, who was named after another sister who had passed away pretty young. But unfortunately, she lost Sherry to SIDS, which is sudden infant death syndrome. And within that same year, her grandmother, who raised her, passed away as well. She was in a pretty fragile emotional state, not her usual jovial self, but more quiet. It would only make sense that she would retreat to the peace of the woods and the mountains around a time like this. So Yakima County itself is over 4,000 square miles of forested wilderness, dusty areas, rough backcountry where to survive, you really have to have that knowledge, that skill set, and, and be prepared for it, living out in the wilderness without anyone around to help you. Daisy would traverse this area, though, to visit family in Oregon on the Warm Springs Reservation, and she could frequently be found fishing the Columbia River, where it divides Washington and Oregon. To think that she would be gone that long or something horrible had happened to her hadn't even crossed their minds, her family's minds, until two months later, they still hadn't heard from her. And this is the 1980s, okay? So it's not like you can just pick up a cell phone and call someone, right? Daisy's things which consisted of a backpack, her keys, and a very special turquoise ring from her sister were found in a remote area of the Yakima Reservation north of White Swan at Soda Springs. Again, this area is over 1.3 million acres, but much of it is actually closed to any non-tribal people unless they have special permission to be there, and is even monitored by guardhouses at access points, and it utilizes gates to close the roads to the public. And I have to imagine that there are other ways to get into the area, though, without being seen. An area that expensive could really never be fully monitored at all times. I mean, it would be impossible, right? So her things were found on the reservation in a closed-in area where you would need to be an American Indian to access it or have permission to be there for hunting or, or something that you would need licensing and then added permission to be on the reservation. And the FBI, who has jurisdiction here, in this instance, some of the reservations have their own police force, others depend on local forces, and even then local forces aren't always attentive to those reservations. The FBI does suspect her disappearance to be a homicide, but with no body and little to virtually no evidence, they really don't have any leads at all. Prior to Daisy going missing, other women were evidently found in the same area, but to find names or more information on them is insanely difficult. The coverage, the exposure, or even the sincerity with which law enforcement takes the cases concerning Native women is deplorable. And this is where I let in a little bit of what I see and feel around her. When I connect to the energy of what happened, I feel that she was caught by surprise. 
She was in an incredibly vulnerable state, and we can all understand what it feels like to be distracted even when we really need to be focused, you know, to be going through the motions without really being aware of what's around us. And I believe that Daisy was resting. I see her almost sitting with her knees pulled in, like cross-legged, but pulled up toward her chest, sitting like, you know, pretzel style, if, if you're familiar with what that means. And her eyes are closed but she's just existing again in a way she would have when she was younger, letting nature kind of wash over her. And I feel that whoever it was, was trespassing for sure. Very much so that they're white. The one in particular, I feel he's larger, not necessarily out of shape, but like a bigger build. And I keep seeing very large and masculine looking hands holding a revolver or some type of handgun, but the word revolver itself gets kind of stuck on my tongue when I think about this weapon, and I can feel the coldness of it against my skin too. I think that she was taken by surprise and that they had also kind of been watching her. She was up in the mountains for days. It wouldn't have been hard to be watching from a distance, really unnoticed, especially if she's distracted. Maybe she's on high alert the rest of the time, but she had a lot on her mind. I feel like he used the weapon to threaten her and without a gun, he would have stood a chance. She would have stood a chance at really probably getting away from him. Combining the weapon and her state of distraction, I believe she was more easily hunted, so to speak. And I have the sense that he easily drove right up onto the road as well. I'm seeing a rusty pickup truck with a bed cover on it. And I believe that he took her where he took others back to a cabin that belongs to him. And in the cabin, I feel is likely in Oregon. I do believe he has since passed away, but it feels that there were certainly more people involved as well. Why was she taken whereas others were left murdered? Well, most were trafficked. Those who couldn't be managed, I believe, were killed. And I do believe that they kept her for a bit and used her, but also abused her. And that she eventually was murdered, and I really do think she was only kept for a short time. And again, I've said it before, but anything that you hear on this show will have source materials linked in the show notes. My feelings on each case are based on intuitive hits and downloads, and everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If there is any evidence to go by, it was washed away or diluted over time. And as there's no way of telling exactly what days, exactly when Daisy was taken, I feel like she was in the mountains for at least a week or two before she was taken. This is essentially where her case ends cold with no leads. It is the Yakima tradition to not speak the name of the dead or to display photographs of them until one year after their death. Then a memorial gathering is held by relatives for them and they they couldn't even begin to mourn her in a traditional way because there was no proof of her death as there is no body. I do want to add that her ring that was found, I believe she threw it off of her finger to let them know that she was taken versus just lost or injured or something in the wilderness. It was her sign to her family. Like I can almost see her removing the ring and dropping it on her stuff as they let her away. And Daisy May was declared legally dead on October 30th, 1997. However, as I said before, 14 other women went missing or were murdered in this very same area over the span of the 1980s and 90s. And that number may seem kind of like not a very big deal, 14 women over two decades, that's less than one person per year, right? Except that it was all in the same area. Daisy's older sister, Patsy, served in the Yakima Nation Tribal Council for quite some time. She used her time to educate students, parents, and educators on what was going on and what was happening to the women and girls in their area. 
She shared with a local news source that many family members and friends of victims are actually afraid to speak up because they fear repercussions from speaking publicly. With no answers as to what's going on, they themselves could fall victim to a serial killer or who knows what else. Law enforcement's lack of response at the time left a lot to be desired. They didn't feel really safe speaking up on behalf of their loved ones. There was no follow-up from officers once a report was made, and that lack of communication leaves families with a lot of questions and no sense of safety or of responsibility. Their family was wrought with grief yet again when their 38-year-old cousin Agnes was shot and killed in the Yakima Nation Housing Authority's Gowdy Rental Housing Park in Wapato in April of 1994. Two American Indian juveniles were arrested for her murder, but regardless, the family was faced with violence again. I believe they lost two other sisters. They lost they lost Daisy and her daughter. Their mother passed away at a very young age, but Patsy continued to work tirelessly to shift the narrative for the Yakima women. She has remained outspoken and has testified to national legislation as part of the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. May 5th was declared a National Day of Awareness to honor missing and murdered Native women and girls. But a day isn't enough. And as I said in the beginning of this episode, the month of November is American Indian Heritage Month. But what about the thousands of women who remain unspoken for? Or if they are being spoken for, who's hearing them? It's not reaching enough ears. Or the right ears. In March of 2006, the U.S. Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez visited the Yakima Reservation and began a cold case initiative because of the high number of unsolved persons, of unsolved missing persons and unsolved death cases in Indian country. This is 20 years after Daisy's disappearance, and again, she wasn't exactly the first woman to go missing in the area. The first federal probe into what the hell was going on didn't start until at least 20 years after this was already clearly an epidemic. Like many others, though, Daisy's family was no stranger to the historical and intergenerational trauma of being born into an American Indian family. Their ancestors had been through war, horrific foster home placements, forced assimilation, school bias, and inadequate health care, and in their most dire time of need when their women and children are disappearing, being murdered, raped, sold into trafficking, all we have done is not nearly enough. Daisy and her sisters actually attended a local Indian mission boarding school because of their grandparents' poor health and because of the passing of their mom when they were young children. Have we learned nothing about the history of these boarding schools? Do you remember in May of 2021 when 215 bodies of indigenous children were found buried near the city of Kamloops in southern British Columbia? They were students of Canada's largest boarding school, the Kamloops Indian Residential School, and these schools were government-funded and designed to force assimilation of Indigenous children in an attempt to destroy their culture and traditions. Following this discovery, a number of other locations were discovered with even more bodies of children. As of October 23, 2021, a total of 7,310 children have been found buried under the Canadian Residential Assimilation Institution, over 7,000. The last boarding school in Canada closed in 1996. And I know we're talking about an American crisis, but this is all over North America. We would be naive to say the least if we didn't believe that similar things will be discovered in the U.S. The executive vice president of the Seattle Indian Health Board, Abigail Echohawk, makes a profound statement. She says the reality of violence against Native women is because this country has created an environment where raping us, abusing us, trafficking us, and where killing us is done with absolutely no to very little consequences. With the data we have found, what we have seen was appalling. 
colonialism, racism, and sexism are the largest factors behind the lack of compassion and motivation shown in taking these cases as seriously as, say, the disappearance or murders of women like Gabby Petito, Chandra Levy, JonBenet Ramsey, Lacey Peterson. Have we seen progress since 1987? Yeah, we have, but is it enough? Since 2010, more than 500 Native women in 71 U.S. cities have gone missing or were murdered. Some reservations cite that women living on reservations are up to 10 times more likely to be killed than the national average. 10 times. They are undeniably targeted because of the lack of repercussions from law enforcement. And next year, we're going to go, and excuse me, next week, we're going to go into the disappearance of Karen Louise Johnley Wallahi, the woman who disappeared around the same time as Daisy. And as we dive further into her disappearance, we'll talk a little bit more about progress made, but also where so much is still lacking. And so in Washington, where both of these women disappeared from, Native Americans make up only 2% of the population, but they account for 6% of acting missing persons reports. If you want to learn more about what's going on with missing and murdered Indigenous women in the U.S., I'll link various Instagram accounts that I follow pertaining to this long-ignored epidemic, as well as some organizations where funds can be donated to aid in the search for missing and murdered Indigenous people. If you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes, as the more reviews the show has, the higher its rating, the more people will hear the stories of those who can no longer speak for themselves. Daisy May Heath has not been found. A number of the other 14 women have not been found. Most of them have likely been trafficked, and it is now that the world is starting to pay attention. So if you're wondering what you can do, donate to these causes. If you don't have the funds to donate to the causes that are actually supporting these women and these girls, then go ahead and share the the podcasts that are speaking about this. And I don't mean just mine. I mean War Cry Podcast, a phenomenal podcast sharing the stories of missing and murdered Indigenous women in the U.S., You can go onto Instagram and search, and I'm going to post one of those on here, but you can search missing and murdered indigenous women and follow some of those, those pages, share the information that they share, share the stories that are on the news about that. Don't play into the mass media hype of only missing white women, but ask for and seek out more information about how you can help and how you can help to even the playing field. Again, Next week's case is going to be about Karen Louise Johnny Wallahy, and we are going to continue to seek more justice in the way of spreading our voice and helping those who can no longer speak for themselves to be heard. Once again, thank you to, for listening to Murder and Mediumship.